There are many reasons why House of Cards is important, not least of which is the fact that it has changed the way we watch television. House of Cards is not even television. I don't know what it is exactly, but the fact that it premiered not on any traditional broadcast network, but instead was launched by Netflix onto the internet, means that it has altered forever the way we can engage with filmed drama. In the old days, by which I mean three years ago, once a week we'd crowd around a box in the corner of the room and watch as the network aired the latest episode of whatever drama we were tuning into. And as if that did not revolutionise things enough, Netflix decided to upload all 13 episodes of the first season simultaneously. Why? Because entertainment is recreation and audiences should always watch shows at their convenience. You were supposed to keep Donald in line. You assured me that you... 25 were... years he's been pushing this particular agenda. We got between the mother bear and a cub. It's a setback, that's On all. On our first day in office. Linda, I've worked with four presidents. Setbacks are a dime a dozen with a bill of this size. Frank, if you can't control I this... I don't take well to being micromanaged, Linda. You want to do my job for me and run the White House? Good luck. I won't stand in your way. Okay, Frank. Fine. This is yours now. If this thing can't make it to the floor in the first hundred days, then I'll let you explain to the president why he lied to the American people. I'm gonna get back to work. Please do. So that is where we are now. But when did House of Cards begin? To answer that, we have to go back to the early 1970s, when one Michael Dobbs decided to further his Oxford degree by enrolling in a post-grad program at Tufts University in Medford, Massachusetts. There, Dobbs studied law and diplomacy. And upon securing his master's, he undertook a PhD where his doctorate was on nuclear defence studies. When he came to defend his dissertation, the professors were so impressed that they encouraged him to go out and get it published. Dobbs did, and he was quickly snapped up by not a nuclear manufacturer, but, and surely this makes a lot of sense, a political party. Great Britain's Conservative Party to be exact. Dobbs's glittering prizes, riveted now to characteristic diligence, attracted the attention of the then Tory leader, Margaret Thatcher, and she appointed him speechwriter. Then Dobbs was promoted to chief of staff before signing off as deputy chairman of the party. After that, Dobbs's tireless efforts were rewarded with a seat in the House of Lords. Now, if that sounds like the career of a character in some absurd novel penned by Geoffrey Archer, it's less an insult as it is an ironic tribute to Dobbs' real-life accomplishments and abilities. You see, Dobbs not only devoted years of service to the Tory party, but somewhere along his hectic timeline, he found the imaginative space to write a novel, House of Cards. Who could replace her? Plenty of contenders, old warriors, young pretenders. Lord Billsborough said, party chairman. Too old and too familiar, tainted by a thousand shabby deals. Michael. Michael Samuels. Too young and too clever. <laughs> Patrick Woolton. Bit of a lout, bit of a bully boy. Yes, it could well be Woolton. Henry Collingridge, the people's favourite. A well-meaning fool. No background and no bottom. What, me? Oh, no, no, no. I'm the chief whip, merely a functionary. I keep the troops in line. I put a bit of stick about. I make them jump. 
and I shall, of course, give my absolute loyalty to whoever emerges as my leader. So it shouldn't come as any surprise then that with all Dobbs's insider knowledge, plus of course the ability to fictionalise in a fascinating manner all that was all too real around him, that he served up as juicy a plot about political ambition as anything since, I don't know, Macbeth? Anyway, in typical Dobbs fashion, his novel had barely hit the bookstores before the BBC decided to adapt it for television. That was back in the dark days of analogue. Remember those days when a TV series was broadcast one episode at a time? The BBC miniseries adaptation was an instant hit, and not only amongst the great unwashed. It just so happened that its broadcast coincided with the leadership battle for the Conservative Party. Suddenly, and unintentionally, there was a frisson of reality about the political fiction. Soon, Margaret Thatcher was out of 10 Downing Street and John Major was in. But although Major appointed Dobbs as Chief of Staff, Dobbs knew that his fiction was not over and he penned two more novels that were received with the same adulation and success. So much for the BBC's successful adaptation. The question I ask now is how did it successfully transfer from the halls of Westminster to the corridors of Capitol Hill? The answer to that lies with the decision to appoint Beau Willimon as the creator of the US version. Willimon is a playwright who is deeply fascinated with politics. He has worked on election campaigns for Charles Schumer, Hillary Clinton and Bill Bradley. He even worked for the Minister of the Interior in Estonia. After that, Willimon penned a play called Farragut North, which George Clooney then adapted into a successful film called The Ides of March. I made a mistake. I made a stupid no. mistake. No, Stephen, you didn't make a mistake, you made a choice. You called me and left a message to call you back that it was important, and when I did, you told me to forget about it. You chose not to tell me. Why'd you make that choice? Because, Paul, I didn't think it was important. Oh, fuck yes, you did. But you went because you were curious, because you felt flattered, because you felt special. To think that Duffy wanted to speak to you instead of me? Because you thought to yourself, maybe I can get something out of this? Because, because it made you feel big? Willimon's first decision in adapting Dobbs' material to Washington was crucial. While in the BBC version, Francis Urquhart was a member of the Conservative Party, it was Willimon's idea to make Francis Underwood a Democrat. You see, by making Underwood a Democrat, the show avoids their cartoonish depiction of Capitol Hill being a den of Republican thieves combated gallantly by noble Democrats. Here, Underwood presents the facade of virtue in order to shield his villainous and vice-ridden intent. There are two kinds of pain. The sort of pain that makes you strong, or useless pain. The sort of pain that's only suffering. I have no patience for useless things. Moments like this require someone who will act, who will do the unpleasant thing, the necessary thing. Another brilliant decision Willimon made was to augment the profile of Claire Underwood. All too often, the weakest link in film drama 
is the dearth of fully realised female characters. One of the many reasons why The Sopranos was such a great show was because of its women. Carmela Soprano was one of the few characters that could stand up to Tony. Likewise, Dr. Melfi was the only one who could see behind his gruff facade. And although she was only in it for the first two seasons, Tony's mother Olivia was the only person who could really get under his skin. In other words, the show's women gave us the multidimensional perspective so crucial to making the drama so vivid. For House of Cards, it is Claire Underwood, played with phlegmatic zeal by Robin Wright, who breathes true Shakespearean life into the politics. Yes, Kevin Spacey's asides come with the measured wit of Richard III. But with Claire Underwood, we have seen her like before in the shape of Lady Macbeth. However, Wright's Lady Macbeth will kill you, not with a dagger or a poisoned chalice, but with love. And more than that, you will thank her for letting you off so easily. You don't usually underestimate people, Francis. I know. Hubris. Ambition. You should be angry. I'm livid. Then where is that? I don't see it. What do you want me to do? Scream and yell? Throw a tantrum? I want more than I'm seeing. You're better than this, Francis. Well, I'm sorry, Claire. I am sorry. No, that I won't accept. What? Apologies. My husband doesn't apologize, even to me. Perhaps the icing on the cake of all the great decisions was to bring in David Fincher as the director of the first two episodes. Early in pre-production, the idea was to capture the emotional and political urgency by shooting everything with a handheld camera. But in discussion, Fincher was able to persuade the producers to go for a restrained frame. A constantly mobile camera suggests that it is not only reacting to the events, but also partaking in them. Instead, he adopted a tried and trusted formula of making sure that the camera was just an observer. With a constantly balanced frame, Fincher's camera would be an observer, a classically composed observer, and nothing more. True classicism does not draw attention to itself. Rather, it presents the event in a way that you assume is the way it should be. Of course, by having Underwood directly address the camera, we experience a little bit of a thrill, feeling that we are now on the inside of his game. Underwood is not only guiding us through the murky waters, but he is also confiding in us. For me, that is the show's most crucial key because it draws us into his corruption. For as the bard said, And thus I clothe my naked villainy with odd old ends stolen forth of holy writ, and seem a saint when most I play the devil. But softer come my executioners. 